Mitchell Tall. Or in Patterson Lakes, just call Mitchell Tall. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Tall. Buy a summer house, just call Mitchell Tall. Mitchell Tall. Real estate. Oh yeah, a little real estate. We want more. <laughs> I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. I am so lucky to be able to work, live, play and broadcast to you live on Radio Karam from this magical place. And as you're out and about enjoying the summer, enjoying the beach, take a moment to think about the incredible ancient country and ancient sands that you stand on in the Karam Karam Swamp. Welcome back listeners for another evening of Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you throughout the last 30 broadcasts and to round out this year tonight, my final guest for 2023 is Claire Leach, who after working in a variety of professions and industries in Australia and internationally, Claire established Hatch Biosystems, a food waste processing startup which used insects to convert food waste into high-value feed and fertiliser product. After eight years, Hatch unfortunately closed in mid-2023. Since then, Claire has been volunteering with Prosper Australia and petitioning local and federal governments to be more proactive in getting vacant properties back onto the market to help fix a housing crisis. Claire's also a passionate Edithville local and really just cares about housing availability, housing affordability and if we are to make conversations about architecture more inclusive and also how we think about the world we're going to create, it's very important to listen to people in our community who are pushing and moving, who are creating new ideas and starting new conversations. So welcome to the program tonight, Claire. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Alana. It's really nice to be here. What a beautiful evening. It is a beautiful evening and we've even got the windows open in the studio, which is a treat because it's so quiet here tonight at the Roy Dor Reserve. Parkland, that's it. It's gorgeous. The question I like to ask all my guests on this program, and you have listened to the show, so you've, you know what that might be. I think you have a suspicion. And that's, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? I have to say, not being an architect, I did wonder what my response to, <laughs> to this would be. But I, I think it's actually, um, I grew up in Essendon um, and the house that I remember most is a double storey, I guess, I'm not sure what era it was, Victorian, maybe Edwardian um, house. And it was by the flight path to the Essendon airport. And I Remember our playroom was upstairs and sometimes you could be there and you would see – you could wave to the pilots <laughs> of the little light, no light crafts. Yes, the little, the, um, back then Essendon Airport was for the little light planes to go to and 
Sometimes you could literally see the pilots as they flew past. And I think I just re- remember thinking how cool houses could be that they could get you so high up in the sky. <laughs> but really, it was probably the fl- planes were running p- pretty low by then. <laughs> That's kind of terrifying, but also the most wonderful optimism and imagination yeah it was fun I mean first few weeks was pretty pretty loud as you can imagine sleeping but you get used to it and don't even notice them after that I want to start by asking about your career because you've had quite an interesting professional story you've worked in a lot of really large organizations as Mm. well and Mm. I've been hearing rumors you're even considering potentially writing a book or a memoir (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I tend to encourage all my guests to go ahead and write and, and yes, do it. Yes, Well, it was, I think probably because um, some of the crazy stuff that's happened to me, especially with Hatch, my friends would say, this is this is crazy. You've got to write this down in a book or a movie. <laughs> I thought, okay. What's your I, wildest memory? Uh, of the of my career or of, of the last experience with Hatch? Maybe let's start with your career. Oh, look, I've definitely done some interesting things. My first full-time job after university was uh, working in Japan as a golf caddy um, with a group of um, other Aussies and uh, we subsequently discovered that the golf course we were working at uh, was owned right by the Yakuza. Oh my goodness. (laughs) How did you land that gig? I I studied Japanese. Japanese was going to take over the world back when I was at high school so you know it was going to be this superpower so we were all you know studying Japanese and then I studied it at university and then sort of found out about this uh, uh, guy who was, you know, recruiting Japanese speakers to go to Japan as golf caddies, which I thought was far more sort of upmarket than being a, um, a what do you call it, a, a hostess or something like that. But it was extremely tiring work. And we <laughs> the boys used to wear, we had little outfits, the boys would wear overalls, short sleeve overalls in summer and a cap. And the girls, regardless of the weather, had to wear... A, a jacket, a long sleeve jacket, long sleeve um, uh, pants, um, white gloves, a, a literally a hard bonnet, a hard helmet which they'd convert into a bonnet, um, and a pink purse. That was so. That was our outfit. And when we complained that why did the boys get to wear like just a cap and some overalls, especially when it was you know forty degrees, we were told that girls would get hit by golf balls if. We didn't wear our helmets and our long protective clothing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So that was sort of an introduction to a, a very different way of life and thinking <laughs> and different community, um, you know, observations. But, um, yeah, it was great fun. And then after that, we travelled overseas. And, yeah, then I worked in corporate Australia, international consulting, recruitment, film and TV, insects. Done a few things. I want to ask about in your time – in your time spent in Japan, oh, yeah. any architectural memories? Oh. Because that is like architects' paradise. Oh yes, absolutely. And I, I made an, I made a massive architectural faux pas. Um, we went to visit some uh, a friend. A friend used to be a, a, an exchange student in Japan, and so we went to stay with her host family, and we were all dressing up to go out. And it was all, um, uh, you know, the, the houses had the, the sliding doors and the, the tummy mats and all those yeah. very traditional. And we were dressing up to go out. And, of course, you know, here in Australia, you put your whole outfit on, you put your shoes on and everything. And so we were in the bathroom, you know, finalising our outfits. And then we, we went to leave and I walked out with my shoes on. Not across the tatami. The whole family just looked in horror at me. <laughs> and I realised that, oops, I forgot. 
you know, wear your shoes in the uh, in the tatami house. Oh so my goodness! That was I felt terrible about that, but they got over it. But see, we're in the in the golf um, in the golf dormitory where we lived. It was basically just uh, expats, so you know, everyone wore shoes, and there wasn't really any of that sort of um, it was a bit of a different world. Yeah. So, but it was beautiful, and I got some of the clients were lovely. The the um, the golf um, golfing clients, and they would invite you. Um, to visit them in their hometowns, if you you know if you were ever ever um, travelling, and a friend and I, we went and visited a lovely um, older gentleman who took us out um, on the um, Iwengifu, and he took us out on a boat, which was the cormorant fishing, and the, the they tie the bird to the um, they have a big banquet table on the boat, and they tie the bird to a, a little rope, and the bird goes out the cormorant, and it catches a fish, and it brings it back to the boat because the neck they <laughs> they pull the rope hard on the neck, so I can't eat it. <laughs> And it goes back to the boat and then they say, thanks, thanks, bird. And then they cook it up on the boat. I had no idea. Yeah, it's a, th- it's a thing. So, yeah, we had some – and then, well, the other highlight there was um, climbing Mount Fuji and um, you, we did the evening – so there's only a couple of weeks a year you can really climb to the peak. It was in, I think, July. And we, you start at um, – about you start late at night and you get about halfway or three quarters up the mountain and at two in the morning you stop and you stay at a um a what they like to call it qk hut little rest hut maybe about midnight and you have a little rest for about three or four hours and then you get up again at three in the morning and you climb so you're at the summit um when the sun rises and that was pretty spectacular as well so oh how incredible yeah, i do cool. love mountains yes yes it was um yeah it was that was Really amazing, but I remember what a steep mountain it I mean, it literally it, climbing it is like what it looks like. It is forty-five degree gradient. <laughs> Fujisan is absolutely the A-frame classic Fu- mountain. Fujisan, there is no, yeah, there is no sort of easy, easy way to get to the top of Fujisan. Phenomenal. Fujiyama, they call it. How did you come to insects and soldier flies? Mm. Well, if anyone had told me I'd work with maggots, I would never have believed it, but. I worked for a charity when I came back from London. I wanted to work in the not-for-profit sector and I worked for a charity as their head of fundraising and it was – they were diverting food waste from landfill. And I think it was – they were around before Oz Harvest or a lot of the other ones. Um, but they've sort of – they haven't grown as exponentially as um, I think some of the other um, charities now that do that. But their focus was cooking the food. So they have a big kitchen in Abbotsford and they, they took food waste that was really bulk – so from, um, you know, I remember one, one year there was a, a, a pallet of fresh salmon that was supposed to be on the ship to, uh, on the plane to Dubai, um, but it, for some reason it got left behind. And so we, we raced it back and we cooked it into, you know, salmon, salmon quiches or pies or um, whatever. So they, they have, they cook a million meals a year from that kitchen in Abbotsford and um, it's a volunteer driven organisation. It's fantastic. But as a head of fundraising, I was always trying to raise money and putting in grant applications and you have to, you know, justify why you deserve someone's money. And so I'd have to do a lot of research about food waste, emissions of food waste, um, you know, why diverting it from landfill is a good thing and giving it the benefit of giving it to people in need at the charities like Salvation Army, etc. So... I found out, even though all these amazing meals we were cooking and all this food that was coming through us and other charities, it was really the tip of the iceberg of the food waste problem. The main food waste is the stuff that's from, uh, I guess, paddock to supermarket trolley, really. 
Um, and uh, that's the bulk of the food waste. I think there's oh – gosh, I'm a bit rusty on my numbers now, but there's definitely like a, a millions of tonnes of food waste a year in Australia that goes it's to It's hard landfill. to imagine. Yeah, it is hard to imagine. And then I read about this um, company in – it was actually started by an environmentalist called David Suzuki. He was one of the ideas people. And they were using insects, a really voracious voracious eater, I would say voracious, voracious eater of food, the black soldier fly larvae, to eat this, to eat food waste within a week. And then the, lar- the grown larvae would be harvested, dried and become a great um, insect feed um, for livestock, for aquaculture, for poultry, etc. And their their waste, the, the vermi compost um, was a fantastic fertilizer so it was you know this amazing to me it was just this amazing sort of closed loop um you know perfect circular economy circular economy before circular economy was a thing and um i took it to the my foundation they were offering grants a first year of innovation grants back in 2013 and um i thought well they'll love it i love this idea or they'll hate it <laughs> and they loved it so uh-huh. i got a grant to explore bringing that to Australia and so that's that's where I did that and it's amazing how you can go from being repulsed by a maggot to just loving having your f- hands in them and just loving everything about them and rearing them and they're it's you know it's funny because I was never a science person at, at school but I look back and think what a waste you became a scientist science is so interesting yeah when I was on exchange I had took a subject called ecological sustainability oh. and this, this idea of uh, insects or biodiversity serving us to contribute to productivity was called ecosystem services. Mm. So this was part of the International Masters of Architecture. Mm. And I guess that shift in perspective mm. is maybe sometimes what's necessary to stop people from being repulsed and recognise that as a resource or ecosystem services. And at the time I was quite young and I was outraged by this rebranding of what, well, it's just a resource, why are you calling it that? Yeah. But I, I understand now why it's necessary. And I think it's just like with anything, it's education, isn't it? I mean, we're always afraid of the unknown. Maggots, they, they're disgusting, they they hang around in, in poo and, and garbage. And But, you know, our maggots were fed um, a great, product that was not from garbage bins was not poo um and they're actually extremely um clean they excrete i mean you give um you you give our soldier flies um you know some chicken manure full of salmonella and e coli and all sorts of horrible things and within seven days the the salmonella is pretty much gone there will still be e coli in it because of the insect poo because that's what they're excreting but you know they've they've pretty much cleaned it up and made it made it a um a, a non-pathogen, um, you know, resource to use. And that's what we used to always say to people about black soldier flies. They're actually an amazingly non-pathogenic um, insect. They don't hover around garbage bins like uh, house flies, uh, you know, can spread disease that way. Soldier flies, very different. They only, um, they only reproduce as a fly at the very last um, stage of their life and only live to reproduce. They don't eat or, or drink or anything really um they, they can drink if they want to but um they're not they don't spread diseases through that way so they're incredibly clean and i think once you understand that it's great fun sticking your hands in then you can hear the little the little meal oh my god they make a noise when they're eating when there's like 10 million in a bucket they, <laughs> you can hear or a big tray they make a little 
noise. Generally, the fucking that's hilarious, Claire. And yours had an exceptionally good pedigree as well that contributed to a study. Is that right? Yeah, we were lucky. We um, we had a great strain that we found in the wild in um, Queensland because back then you couldn't. I mean, now you can buy Soldierfly online and stuff, but back then we had to literally find our own. So they were really um, a really um, you know great breed, whereas most of the soldier, uh, soldier flies from around the world that have been used to do this sort of work, uh, they come from um, China or um, America and pretty much all of them have come from America anyway originally. So you've got this sort of really dom- highly domesticated um, breed that like ours had ours laid a thousand eggs per um, per um Obby position or per, per laying of, of a clutch of eggs, whereas the ones from, you know, um, overseas can be like a couple of hundred. So ours were really fertile and, you know, great Aussie beer drinking flies. <laughs> Much more productive. From Queensland. <laughs> yeah, and they, 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 we sent them to Switzerland to be part of a trial and they said, your Aussie flies are fantastic. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Excellent point of national pride. Absolutely. They should be on the uh, next next. Note. <laughs> Listeners may be wondering how is this relevant to architecture? And I say yes. every week that everything is architecture. Yes. But when we design big buildings, big public buildings, the the bigger, the greater your concern about waste management mm-hmm. and waste removal is mm-hmm. and waste responsibility. And some buildings also have with their building owners and managers more holistic operating contracts. Mm-hmm. And so people who run and manage buildings are also responsible for managing the waste of those buildings. Exactly. And in fact, one of the um, other companies that has um, been out in the Salterfly area and is still out and was fortunate to get some funding from Michael Cannon Brooks's um, fund, um, they are looking at a, a sort of a one they call it their box, their secret box, where they're looking to put it in apartments and things like that. Which I don't know how that's going yet. It's been sort of talked about for quite a while. Um, from my perspective, it's a really interesting, obviously interesting idea, but um, you know, it's a pretty complicated process. Um, the whole insect bioconversion, what we call it. So you know, adding the food waste, making it inaccessible. Um, you know. All that, that's, it's quite a big life cycle to have in a box. So if they can get it to work, that'd be pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, so the idea is that, you know, you could build a new apartment and then you could put this box in the in the um, the basement and potentially it can reduce the food waste. We felt that, um, uh, that it was also something that could be utilised on a bigger scale for economies of scale. Therefore, um, you know, rather than sending the waste, um, uh, you know, to landfill and so forth because the emissions are so bad even composting is not great if it's withdrawal composting um this was an opportunity to to do on-site or not on-site on-site but you know waste management in an enclosed environment and we actually were talking with arup at one stage about what that would look like what the facility would look like and you know how we could make it as sustainable facilities we could the flies also um to breed they use natural sunlight um that's their that's their sort of you know stimulation um and you know but you can use artificial a lot of people use artificial lighting but i was a stickler for no we use got to use natural sunlight we're blessed with natural sunlight in australia i want to make sure that the facility can utilize natural sunlight and continue that natural cycle of insects because at the end of the day you've got you know potentially billions of little workers doing it all for free for you why not give them 
mm. what they want to breed and keep happy. Certainly ethical questions mm. in, in, in there. Mm-hmm. Would your product be considered vegan? That that uh, off use fertilizer that would have come out at the result of that process. Uh, so we the fertilizer was organic, certified organic. Uh, the insects could not be fertilized, um, certified organic unless they had eaten organic food waste. Um, so yeah, I had never never. Never thought about the vegan aspect. Like whether honest. a vegan would uh, would want to use the the fertilizer because it was produced by animals, essentially. Well, I understand I vegans it, don't eat honey, for example, because the bees are little workers. Well, I guess say. yeah. I mean, I get. Um, but potentially, I mean, I guess the other thing is from my limited understanding of veganism is that if it falls on the ground, it's okay. Is that right? So if know. a nut falls on the ground, you're allowed to eat it. But I think that's maybe the freegans. Freegans, <laughs> with people's in, individual in, individual rules and, yes. and preferences okay. there. But so it sounds like you had hardy Aussie flies under we had the Aussie fantastic sun. Aussie flies. I love them. I love them. I still love them. <laughs> what what was what's really preventing us in Australia from rolling this out in mass and scale? Because a lot of councils are bringing in Fogo bins now and Fogo collection. Yeah. It's, it's more popular in other some councils than others. Look, the other thing that was fantastic about the saltflies is that they will eat everything that's not plastic or bone. So we could put in a really mixed waste stream and um, and they won't eat sort of um, garden waste either. So uh, leave that to the worms. But so they would, you know, so supermarket waste, we could take, we were taking, you know, huge chunks of waste from, um, we we're working with CleanAway um, and we would take food waste from Woolworths and we'd chuck it all in together into our special special sort of um, mixer and the insects would eat everything that was food and they would sort of lick all the packaging clean and it was incredible yeah it was amazing and as I said it was a, a billion little mouths doing their bit for for the environment and um, yes yeah, so I, I think I mean really in Australia for, for us um, the issue was just not enough backing from the the corporate um, world. There was lots of interest from the philanthropics and stuff to give grants and things, but you know we were talking ten, twelve million for a, a larger scale facility, and we got some government grants for that. Um, but our corporate partner, um, who was the waste company, ended up deciding that it wasn't something I wanted to do. And now I see them looking at a um, big um, anaerobic digester. Is that a similar process? Um, look, it's it's not, um, and there's definitely pros for it, and there's definitely um, you know reasons why an anaerobic digester would be a good idea as opposed to insects. But at the same time, I think in all of our studies and um, you know um, case studies that we put forward was that the value of products coming out of the insect um, is far higher value than out of a, an anaerobic digester, and also um, the operational costs we've we believed were a lot more competitive and also most importantly um, I think is that the anaerobic digesters have to have it like our gut they have to have a pretty good balanced diet to keep all those bacteria very happy so you really can't just throw anything in an anaerobic digester whereas you can pretty much throw anything in a maggot and it will eat it. (laughs) Soldier flies make make all your problems and troubles disappear because that's also a thing with uh, waste collection right there's Mm -hmm. not always user compliance people Mm -hmm. accidentally 
accidentally put the wrong things in and the wrong yes. bin and yes. they get confused. Yes, no matter how many times you've stopped people, they seem to get confused. What is cardboard and what is food? And they tend to end up all in the waste bin. <laughs> and sometimes that changes over time yes. and it can become more difficult yes. for, let's say, elderly members of our yep. community. So that's really amazing that it can sort it. Yeah, and that was one of the things that we found really compelling about and why we started getting some really good feedback from. Um, and then, of course, you know, we even got the, the plastic waste, um, uh, the calorific value of that tested, and that would have been great furnace input for, you know, um, heavy industry and stuff. So it, it could have really eliminated all waste streams from that process. Um, but, yeah, so look, it, it's, it's something that is happening overseas, but um, it's – you know, I think there's still it, – it, it's happening in Europe, for example, but in Europe, like in Australia, we didn't we can feed animals. There was no limitation to what animals could be fed with insects. Um, you know, maybe ruminants not, um, although we've done – we did tests with the University of Melbourne and it was – there's no problem. They love it. But because it's not – it's not handing over a live insect. It's a it's a meal by the time it's yeah. processed. Although chickens love to chase obviously live insects around, but um, it you know aquaculture, poultry, pigs. There's a whole variety of um, of animals that need really high quality protein, and this was 60% protein. <clears throat> so you know it's almost as high quality as fish meal. Incredible. So you know it, the, it, so you're kind of looking at double whammies, you know, or, or sort of the, the sort of um, you know, then you're looking at, well, the sustainability of um, saving, um, you, you know, fish uh, fish meal not, not being harvested from the oceans and um, protein and all those sorts of things that we're trying to create more of. We've got, you know, growing populations and how we're going to feed everyone with more protein and so forth. So. There's a lot of energy and a lot of resources actually goes into <coughs> producing animal feed. Absolutely. Not even human feed, but absolutely. animal feed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, and a lot of um, land resources go into producing soy. I mean, that's apparently it's one of the biggest deforestation uses for the Amazon is is, is um, deforesting to produce more soy soybean meal. Wow. Um, and even I shouldn't say this, but I will. Um, you know, even almonds are incredibly water intensive. So, you know, you know things like almond lattes, and they're obviously very popular. And they certainly I understand people who are lactose intolerant and so forth, but. Um, is it the most environmentally friendly milk to be having? I'm not quite sure of the science on that. It's very hard to know as a consumer what is the right choice exactly. to make there. Yeah. And I always wonder why is it that we're relying on the corporate sector oh. to drive this sort of innovation? Yeah. yeah. Well, we're relying on them because they've got all the money, basically. And, and you know, for someone like um, Clean Away, who we were working with, it was a win-win. It was like, you've got a waste problem. Your clients have a waste problem. You know, Woolworths has been saying from 2015, we will, we will be – well, actually, in 2011, they were saying we will be net zero waste by 2015. Well, then they went to we will be net zero waste by 2020 and now they're at by 2025. I mean, <laughs> These targets just keep being pushed <laughs> exactly. out. Exactly, and they're not doing – you know, there's, they won't put the money. I mean, how, well, how much profits – I shouldn't go on about it, but how many, how many profits do companies like, you know, Woolworths and Cleanaway have? They could have bought something like us and rolled it out which was what we were suggesting they do. And we were like, we don't, I'm not here to make, make myself like the next Michael Cannon Brooks. I'm just here to solve a problem. And if you guys put in the money and do all the hard, hard yards, it's, it's yours, you know, but um, yeah, just corporate Australia is very uh, obviously shareholder, share driven, share price driven. So taking risks on things is, um, you know, 
something that they're a bit nervous about. And also, unfortunately with us, we had um, some of the top leadership that we were working with initially at, at um, this waste company, Clean Away, it, uh, they all changed after our project got, um, you know, got embraced. So that that's hard too because new leaders have new visions and want to get things done there differently and so forth. So Totally. That continuity mm. is definitely hard to achieve. Yeah. Are you optimistic mm. about the future of waste management in Australia? Do you think we're going to change? Um, <clears throat> I'm not overly optimistic, to be honest. I don't think there's enough um, – I don't think corporates are being pushed hard enough, to be honest. Even just things like you see, you know, oh, that someone does something terrible and they just get a fine. Like, and you know, people just say, "Oh, well, they built that into the into the business case." Mm. You know, someone was telling me about the public got knocked down. Yeah, the public got knocked down, and you know, um, or you know, the, the the sacking of all those workers at Qantas or whatever, you know, the fines that they get are so small and it's like, oh, well, they, they would have they would have factored that in and gone, okay, well, we'll just, you know, we'll do that. I'm not saying obviously that that's what they did but that's the public perception. Mm. And so I think unless there's some really um, big fines um, that really make people, corporates go, well, we can't afford to do business as usual. Um, I, there's, a, you know, it's very easy to greenwash or it's very easy to say you're doing things or – hiding real information because especially in this age of disinformation, how do we know really what's, you know, when we hear something, it's very hard to know if that's really the, the right, the truth or not. Absolutely. The scientific truth. I Are say. you hoping to see local government step up and step in, in in terms of more sustainable waste management strategies? I think it will be hard for local governments to do much more. I know that they're, I know that they are keen to do more because they spend a lot of our rate money on waste disposal, a lot, it's significant um, and even councils like, um, you know, where we are in Kingston, you know, beach seaweed and all that sort of stuff is a, another problem they've got to dispose of. So they're really keen to find um, solutions. And, you know, I think it's really disheartening for everyone when, you know, great things like what we had going, um, which was built on international networks, all the experts were involved. Like it wasn't just a, you know, it was validated, proven, um, I think it's really disheartening for a lot of people to see uh, if, you know, that that was eight years of something that really should have been embraced by everyone regardless of – even if it just broke even, it mm. would have been good. Mm. But it was profitable. Cost neutral. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So – Do soldier flies eat seaweed? Um, they they will eat seaweed. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a lot of sea grass that we get on our beaches, not seaweed, which isn't there. As I said, they're not really grass eaters. Um, but what they could do is help um, process it and um, eat a lot of the other stuff and separate the wastes out and so forth. Mm. And there could well be other things in there that they could help separate. But um, you know, it, it's more it's more just saying that there are so many waste issues that that we don't tend to think about um, that councils have to deal with, and we know councils are pretty pretty strapped for cash and opportunities. So. I want to ask about housing equity. Mm. How did you fi find your way to be so interested and passionate in this space? Mm -hmm. Well, I've I've um, I've sort of worked in the not-for-profit sector for probably twenty years or so as a volunteer. So I've always had a sort of you know um, that sort of mindset that you know concern for those less fortunate um, and. I think the housing situation has just gotten to be so ridiculous in Australia. And Australia is unique. 
nowhere else in the world is it like this. Um, and now that we know that, you know, especially I think COVID obviously made it, made it worse because people didn't want to live in um, shared environments with other people because um, A, they were worried about catching the virus or B, they were now working from home so they need more space. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden a lot of people started to need more houses. So I think definitely COVID pushed forward a what was happening anyway because no one's been investing in social housing or anything. But, you know, my understanding is that before, um, uh, you know, the, the Second World War, the government had as part of their, um, you know, regular um, sort of bucket of money to build housing. And then after the Second World War, it was sort of put into like social housing and like something we do for those people who, you know, don't have anything else. And so it's not really part of just Australia building. It's sort of became this sort of like, well, you know, you should be out there buying your own house and building your own future. And, you know, for those poor people that can't do it, well, you know, we'll, we'll have it, we'll make a few houses each year. But even even people who were on double incomes can't afford what, what they would consider a house they would like to live in and key workers key worker housing key that's workers. nurses that's yeah. teachers yeah. that's it's police officers yeah. that immediate industries necessary yeah. for the function of our society yeah and they should be able to act, i mean you go to london and i think new york's the same or similar where they've got um you know community housing council housing right next to you know really expensive houses all through notting hill all through kensington like there it's just a big mix of people so you do have those um, cleaners, you know, lower paid workers and the, the teachers and those sort of, you know, upper upper working class all mixed in together because why should they be constantly forced out into the back and beyond where they're going to have to pay more money, petrol, or, you know, because, yes, poor people do have cars, <laughs> we, we discovered. Um, and also, you know, be in areas where there are no services, where there's, you know, often very limited, enjoyable architecture because everything looks like a carbon copy of some horrible thing that a, a developer dreamed up to, to do the cheapest development they possibly could. So it's it just seems that we seem to accept in Australia that this sort of idea of meritocracy. So if you haven't um, achieved enough to buy your own house, to buy your own fancy car, uh, well, you just haven't really tried. And even the fact, you know, I was watching recently – um, you know, because end of year, they often say it like the rich list end of year and so forth. Who's on the, I mean, you know, it doesn't really change that much. Occasionally there's someone new pops up and someone, but, but I thought, who, why do we celebrate this? Why does anyone care? Why do we care? Why don't, why isn't it, you know, the list of, I mean, okay, we've got Australian of the, of the year, which, okay, is great, but, but it's, it's not really seen in the same light as, the, the Forbes rich list. Like, Much more interested in the order of Australia and Australia Day honors oh, each year. Well, I, I hope people are, but it seems to me why are we even putting anything in about who's rich? What, and yeah. especially, you know, yeah. I'm not going to go on about it, but, you know, a lot of people don't get super rich without, you know, having done some, you know, um, creative accounting along the way <laughs> or creative business tactics. So, you know, it's just sort of about why do we celebrate that? I remember my mum gave me a book years ago, Called, I can't remember what it was called, something about what is success. And it was all about people like foster carers, people like people who are, are doing things that are full time mums or, um, you know, I can't remember contributing now. Contributing to contributing society. Contributing to society or the family or whatever that is, that is, and how you should see that as success and not just, oh, I'm just a mum or I'm just a 
this or just to that. Like these are really valuable things as we saw, as you say, during the pandemic. So I think for me, I've always been interested in that. And then the the frustration over the housing issue, the fact that I started hassling my local MP for information and found out that um, Victoria did have a vacant land residential land tax because um, the reason I um, – one of the reasons I started becoming a bit more educated in this was um, I did some – I saw an article about five years ago now maybe um, about the vacant – there was this group Prosper had done some research at Prosper Australia and they – Suggested there could be up to you know sixty seventy thousand vacant properties in Melbourne. They it's massive. Yeah, and they were being called ghost homes. And look, they they admit that that's probably over overestimated, but they think more realistically it could be forty thousand. And I'm like, okay, if they, if even if it's even if it's ten thousand, like even if somehow they've managed to, you know, uh, incorrectly you know raise it by six hundred percent. That's 10,000 homes we could have today being utilised rather than waiting till 2030 and spending $5 billion yeah. to build another 10,000 homes. And sink more carbon into the ground sink and waste carbon. more materials. Exactly. And w- for what reason should a home be empty? I mean, we all understand that there are sometimes houses empty because, you know, someone's died or someone's moved into an aged care facility. But the chances are they're never going to move back home. So yeah. why is it why is it not appropriate for us to say, well, can't we rent your house house out maybe with the furniture or can't we, you know, give that to a family in need who's fleeing from domestic violence? There isn't a, a way we can utilise that, that home. And that's only one example. But there are a lot of homes empty for reasons that aren't even that good. Like they're just – people don't want to put tenants in them because they might get a bit ruined and then the value won't be as great. So really they're just, you know, land, land, banking. land banking a house. Yeah, so – and we know what a profitable – Thing that's been over the last 10 years. Yes. So one of the things I was interested in with Prosper and I I'm don't, I only do some voluntary stuff with them. Um, I'm not pretending to be um, a, an advocate or a speaks, spokesperson for them, but the whole um, as, idea of, of property um, as an asset to get wealth from is sort of seen as questionable because um, – it's not productive and especially not productive if it's empty. So the idea is that wealth should be generated from productive use of people. You know, you go out and do something, you're being productive, you should earn money. Um, resources, we should, you know, build a factory on that or build a apartments on that to make it productive. Um, but if it's just sitting there and being productive for, the, for value, for wealth generation to one person, that's not productive use. So... Um, that's that's really where I think it's really interesting that that this has been thought of for over a hundred years. This idea of all land should be productive, and um, I think when I found out, so there is a vacant residential land tax over sixteen councils in Melbourne, the inner councils, and but it's voluntary. So Do we have one here in Kingston? No, no. it's a voluntary tax. Who yeah. pays voluntary tax? Exactly, exactly. So you can contact the SRO and say, oh, excuse me, I think I forgot to pay my $20,000 um, a year, um, you know, vacant residential land tax, but probably not many people are going to do that. So the, it's up to the state government or state revenue office to try and identify those people now. They don't seem very interested in doing that because 
Um, it's voluntary. Otherwise, if they were interested in doing it, it wouldn't be voluntary. Um, or, or I think they don't call it voluntary. They call it um, self-reporting. So uh, recently, I believe the Greens have been pushing the government to um, make the SRO more more proactively pursue, um, you know, vacant homes. But all I would say is to anyone who's listening, if you know of a home that's vacant in your area, just just go to the SRO website and do a little tip-off. Can you do that? <laughs> you can do that. And look, I know people will go, well, that's, that's you know, that's dobbing people in, that's not fair, da, da, da. But I think the thing is that, um, you know, if, if we are in such a housing crisis and we know houses are empty and the longer a house gets empty, it becomes um, dilapidated and hard to utilise again without great expense, I think we all need to say, well, is it really fair to have properties that are sitting empty for year after year after year? Bit of a sitting duck in the neighbourhood as well. Well, that's right. And who wants to live next to a house that's you know potentially got rats going? I, there's a there's a vacant house that's been years vacant for years and years near my parents' place. Um, and I went in the other day. I thought the gate was open. The front gate's always closed. It was open. I thought, oh well, it's open. I'll have a little wander in and have a look around the backyard and see if, if anyone's living here or what state the house is in. There were trees and vines all through inside the house. Um, the front lawn was mowed, so clearly someone's paying for the front lawn to always look um, like it's been maintained, but the inside was literally the you know, land of the Triffids. It was – I couldn't believe it. Awful. Yeah, and so that's – that's just a property that has to be pulled down really now. So how many vacant homes do we have in the city of Kingston? Uh, city of Kingston isn't one of the highest areas um, and they could be vacant for different reasons. It's hard to sort of get access to real, really good data and there is a new data source that we were – that Prosper and I have been talking about getting access to which is um, uh, we might need to raise some funds to buy or to pay for um, – although I'll, I'll try and obviously see if I can get some help with that. But um, to date, usually it's just taken by, you know, electricity use or water use and things, and people can get a bit smart about that. They can just put the sprinkler on every now and again or, you know, have the lights coming on and off. So so just sort of make it look like someone's living there. So it's really about um, – I think it's really about neighbours saying, we don't want this in our community. We, we want our community to be – you know, available to people who want to rent. And we're not talking, you know, you know, um, people who don't have jobs or people who are not good neighbours. We're talking about people who, Just you know, families, you know, families kind families, of get rental properties. Yeah, who are couch surfing, who are, who are living in substandard places because that's all they could get and they're afraid to, to you know, say anything to the landlord in case this is all you can go and someone else can come and... Living that horrible. It's really <laughs> common. Students too. I mean, exactly. So that would be my thing and I'd be interested to see if there's many people saying, you know, what people's response to that would be. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of people say it's my, my private property and I'm entitled to do with that what I want. Oh, well, exactly. But unfortunately, if it's a government law that you have to pay vacant rental land tax, yeah. then you can still keep it vacant, but you just have to pay 20 grand a year or whatever it, the, it's, the property value is. Well, um, all swimming pools have to be registered now and have to comply mm-hmm. with safety when they're yeah. able to track that through satellite imagery because a swimming pool is a great big blue dot on yeah. the Google Maps, for yeah. example. Yeah, I think, look, I think it's definitely something that could be um, – uh, enforced, but and a lot of cities are enforcing it. Um, 
Vancouver, um, England, like a lot, of, a lot of cities are enforcing the vacant residential land tax because this is a problem globally. We don't seem to have a huge, um, you know, you know what Australia is a bit like. We don't like to tip on the toes of people with assets. <laughs> I think we. I, I think I have assets. I, I own a house, um, but you know, I, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't have investment properties or anything, but you know. 20 investment properties? No, I don't think that's really reasonable. Let alone vacant ones. Vacant, exactly, let alone vacant ones. So, yeah, I think yeah, I think we should just all as a community think about what sort of community we want to live in a society and do we want to continuously be putting our government into further debt to do jobs that have already been done? The houses are there. We just need to better utilise them. What are some of the latest data around the housing crisis at the moment? How many people need homes or are in need of more secure housing? Look, I, I'm not across that, to be honest. All I know is that, um, from what I've read, is that the 12,000 homes that the Victorian state government is planning to build by 2030 is not even going to touch the sides, really. Um, so, yeah, it's clearly it's clearly a big problem. Um, and now we know how expensive building is becoming. Yes. So um, the idea of just building more properties isn't really that great either. Um, there's a, there's, I've, I've done some research into um, uh, utilising um, some of the big um, tower offices in the city and turning those into apartments, mm. which I think is really exciting. That's and an excellent proposition. Yeah. It is. And there's been thought about that. And the I was excited someone told me that the um, City of Melbourne is doing one um, in conjunction with some other charities or, you know, who are going to put the tenants in. Um, and they're raising $25 million for a refurbishment. And I was like, wow, this is exciting. Then I found out it was a six-storey building and we'll develop 50 apartments. So that's pretty much about half a million per, per apartment just for a retrofit. And I know these things can be expensive, but don't get me wrong. But I kind of thought, well, that's great that after all these years with one is happening, but I'm talking about, uh, you know, a much bigger proposal that could put in 500 apartments. And if you look overseas, they are being done. New York, they've done a big... Um, I think it was New York or New Jersey, they've done a big skyscraper, a, a, a conversion into apartments. Wow. Um, and there's a company, an architectural firm, it's an international firm um, called, I think, Glessner it's called. Glensner, is that, is that the right one? Or you, you wouldn't I'm know? not sure. I've not sure. Um, I think they're Canadian-based, but they have got a model which is they can do a cost-benefit analysis for $5,000 US dollars to determine whether a building, whether it's whether it's whether it's cost benefit to turn a building into an apartment. Now I think that's five thousand US that we Peanuts. could very well spend. Peanuts for developers, could, exactly. And if you did a, I think the um, Housing Association of Australia did an assessment with, um, uh, oh, what's that architecture firm starts with H? Can't think of them. Hassel, um, and they identified I think it was ninety buildings in the city that are currently empty, um, and that could potentially be turned into. Apartments. Now, if we even selected the top five of those that were government owned, maybe. Yeah. And spent 5,000 US, that's a $30,000 feasibility study, and you'd have your answer within a week. That mixed occupancy is also super critical because it gives a diversity to who's in the building. It helps people have, you know, some aspirations, have some good connections, but also 
prevents some of the risk factors around aggregation and some of the safety risks. Absolutely. And you, you don't get social composters. Yeah. And that's what we've done wrong in the past when we've built these housing commission towers. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah, they, they, I mean, the, the ones we've got definitely need to go. But um, do we want to build new housing commission towers or do we want to build, as you say, um, cross-pollinated um, Diversified assets, <laughs> which are cross-pollinated. To stay with the insect metaphor. Yes, that's right. I love them Well, metaphor. bees are great builders. They're the yeah. first architects. Although they, they don't let anyone else but bees into their hives, so that's probably not great. <laughs> well, I don't know. Can anyone else fit inside an octagon but a bee? <laughs> they, they, they're very uh, bee-specific <laughs> constructions. <laughs> Actually, I was reading, I mean, Christmas we watched Man vs. Bee with Rowan Atkinson. Oh, yeah. Not sure if you've ever seen it. It's, Should uh, I? Uh, it's it's very Mr Bean. If you like Mr Bean, you probably enjoy love it. I do love Mr Bean. Well, then you might enjoy it. But it's it's very cute. Anyway, it's about a bee and Rowan Atkinson. So. Um, but, yeah, so so there are really a lot of really interesting things that, that you see people starting to do, but just nothing gets through. Like I've, I've called the architect from Hassel about 20 times to ask what's happening with that great piece of research. She has not yet responded to me. I've even called her secretary. I've got like... I just want to ask about this. I've seen this research. It's on the internet. What's happening with it? And I, that, so that's what I'm like. I just. You're very persistent. I just keep persi- persisting because without persistence, things just get dropped or things don't, these ideas don't get taken up. And I think a huge congratulations and also a huge thank you is due because it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy to pester your local <laughs> members, to pester your politicians. Yeah. And people have, people have 35,000 problems on for on any given day and everyone's exactly. so caught up and busy. Yeah. And, and some will say that's the argument, you know, we're all so busy that we don't mm. focus on some of the more collective issues. Yeah. But our Long Beach community here, particularly in Edith Vale, has so many motivated, passionate people, many of whom have been fortunate to speak to on the program yes. so far. Yes, it's a great community and... Um, you know, I know not everyone on your program is from the community, but I used to live in Abbotsford, which I thought would be a great community, and it is to some extent. I'm not dissing anyone who lives in Abbotsford because I, I love it, but I find the community very different in Edithvale. It's a very sort of um, – it feels much more relaxed. People feel like they've got time to think about local issues and get involved. I guess the, the inner city, urban uh, – Faster, faster, Fast faster. The place of, of Abbotsford perhaps didn't quite allow for that. So, yeah, I definitely think it's a – but I also think you, you you move to a place like – you live in Abbotsford because you want to be out and about all the time. Yeah. You move to somewhere like Edithville because you want to be outdoors. You want to take your dog for a lovely walk on the beach when you're allowed to. You, you know, get involved, you know, meet people. It's a much different sort of lifestyle and I think that's why it's a, it's a great place to be part of Kingston. It's a great council. I also think spatially mm. we have the setup. We have the beach as our main public <gasps> space. Our main shopping strip along the Pena Highway yeah. is pretty awful. It needs a lot of work. It's going to be refurbished soon, mm. which is really exciting. Mm. I think the Edith Vale Collective, who are previous yes. conversation partners yes. on this show, have done a fair bit of work with Kingston. They're hustlers as well. Like They're big hustlers <laughs> for, for consultation <laughs> and, and trying to get the, the traders on board yeah. with that yeah. and, and looking to revamp it. The main public space for us is the beach mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of places across the world that, that mm. have that but that's where people come together, that's where people mingle mm. and meet and talk and 
It's like a and have a never nice time. Everyone's yes. in a good mood when you're at the beach. I mean, even I remember in Abbotsford uh, when I used to take my dog for a walk, I'd go to the local Collingwood football ground, and you know, um, <laughs> people would just meet with their coffee, and once the coffee's drunk, they they go. Here, people tend to sort of you know walk with each other along the beach and and talk, and there's a bit. It's just a bit more. Seems to be people get more involved, and on New Eve, everyone's down. I couldn't believe it. I was thinking, where am I going to go for New Eve? And then all of a sudden, oh, everyone's on the beach. It's our piazza. It's our it's, town square. It's fantastic. So yeah, it is. We're very lucky to live here, and to architecturally, I think it's a really, it's a great, great place. I mean, lots of variety. Um, big blocks. Big blocks. So there's a really yeah boatshed. Big blocks. So there's a lot of this. Um, Subdivision and putting a second house at the back, which is a great utilisation of, of space. Um, pretty low density, but, you know, there's a lot of people who like that. So More and more units coming in, more and more townhouses. Yeah, townhouses, but not nothing high. No, nothing a two-storey. A two-storey. Yeah, two-storey. But yeah. as we've discussed on this program, you can actually create an excellent yield out of two-storey. Yeah. So you can take yeah. the side of an average family McMansion oh, yeah. and develop – yeah. Four to six townhouses on that yeah. on that block, which is excellent use of land. Absolutely, and even things like in London, you know, you, and I was sort of thinking about it in some of these areas that do have these beautiful big mansions. Like I would hate to see a lot of those mansions ripped down, even to put more high density living. And I understand that there's a you know that that's what's happening because there's a need. But why don't we be more creative? Like turn those mansions into multiple homes, like they do in in London. You know. You've got an old, beautiful old, um, you know, um, place in Notting Hill or something that's been converted into, you know, five apartments. Rachel Bernstone on this program did did say that that's likely the future of where we're headed. Oh. The uh, surgical, almost precision required to dissect a building and separate it. Yeah. And take apart the conjoined twins of of a, of a McMansion or a whole yeah. mansion and turn, turn that into viable. And because viable. you've got that beautiful garden space that people can still enjoy. And, you know... Quicker through planning, I would have thought. Exactly. And also some of these places are so well built. Yes. You know, I mean, the fact that we've got places that have been built in the last 10, 15 years and they're falling apart. And yet here's buildings that have been around for 200 years, some of them, and they're... Very high quality. All high that quality. Is love and maintenance. Exactly. And high, beautiful high ceilings, big windows, beautiful. Takes us back to our full circle almost really on a point about waste and keeping construction mm-hmm. waste, which is a gigantic contributor to landfill, yeah. out of it. And yeah. that's actually one of the arguments with the Housing Commission towers instead of knocking them over and knocking over those mm. estates. Um and particularly offices doing a lot of work around repair, retain and reinvest mm. that – should have kept that. We should mm. have redeveloped it. The construction lead time would have been shorter. Mm. Residents could have been back into it quicker. Mm. And that we have all the talent across all the architects in yeah. Melbourne yeah. to have come up with a solution with that housing stock or some of that could Do have been Do you know what used. they've – I know I've heard about they're doing it, but I haven't seen the plans or anything. Is the plans actually out there at the moment or are they still in planning phase? It's possible it's still in the process yeah. of planning. I haven't come across well, it I think uh, Radio Architecture needs to cover the story. Maybe yeah, asking we are, the hard questions. Absolutely. We're continuing right through into the 2024 program Fantastic. with much excitement Fantastic. and uh, rapidly booking booking guests well into well, the year right. ahead. And I, I think that, you know, I hear on the, the grapevine there could be some pretty exciting international guests potentially coming as well. So we'll keep our, keep our ears and eyes open for that. Fingers crossed for the new year. 
helping you as well. Well, Claire, it's been an absolute pleasure tonight. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. My pleasure. It's always fun to chat with you, Alana, um, another Edith Bell resident who I've come to become very, very um, familiar with over the last year and a half, and it's great. So, And congratulations on the show. You've done a great job for, um, for you know, Kingston and for architecture. <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire. And same to you, please. Keep, keep your energy and your steam going because we really need it. Good night. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune in to my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Radio Caram. Caram.